This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. I think another thing that kind of comes up is that uh, uh, there are elections that happen. There's politics that are perpetually going on all over the world. And I I do feel like um, if you live in a city and your only source of food is the grocery store, then who you vote for is going to make a big difference. Because if you vote for the wrong person and they somehow make a poor choice, then suddenly you might not have food at the grocery store anymore. Or the price of the food at the grocery store is now and the span of a year is now 10 times higher than it used to be. And so it's like, oh, this is this is not good. Suddenly food is so insanely expensive. Um, whereas I kind of feel like if you've got your humble home and your giant garden um, and you've got a little money uh, under the mattress or whatever, then it kind of seems like, all of that political stuff becomes really small and far away and doesn't matter as much. And so then, then you kind of tend to tune it out. It's kind of like um, it, it, who you vote for doesn't matter as much as it used to. Um, and, and you find other things to entertain your days, I suppose, other, other things that you value more. Um, same thing goes back to the whole thing of like the pursuit of the dollar when we started with this, you know, how do I, how to get permaculture apples into Safeway? And it's kind of like, all right, you did all this work and you got these giant boxes and you put all the apples in these giant boxes and you took it to the middleman and he paid you, uh, 17 cents a pound for your apples. And then it's like, you know, all right, well, you could take them directly to the, the store over there. And then they'll pay you 80 cents a pound. And it's like, yay, you made more money. All right. But it's not Safeway anymore. Um, so it's like, but you're all focused on the dollar at this point. How much money can I get for my apples? How much money can I get for my efforts? And then I guess the thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to explore this, this alternative path which is what I would really like to talk about. So when the question started off with how to get more for culture apples in the safe way, this thing, this direction we're going is, is what I feel like is a good, I don't know, I, I, I'm going to say it's a good level seven kind of thing. Now, uh, due to a previous article I wrote, I typically refer to this now as the state of GERT, or, or we keep calling it GERTitude. And I, and I feel like in a lot of my podcasts in the last, I don't know, four years or so, this expansion of vocabulary, gertitude, uh, because it's a big story. There's a link to the story. And the idea is, is that Gert has these things. Gert has a humble home, a massive garden, and she 
sells some of her excess produce to people, but but nearly 100% of her diet is coming right out of her own garden. And um, and the money just kind of shows up. She, she doesn't really have to go anywhere to sell it. People come to her, and um, and so she makes some money every year. And it's very low effort. And so as part of the picture uh, and the story of Gert, that uh, I basically propose the idea of if I give Gert a million dollars and Gert doesn't change a damn thing in her life, everything, her entire life stays exactly the same. She doesn't do anything differently. Is it fair to call Gert a permaculture millionaire? That's, that's kind of like the core of that article, the article about Gert. And so, um, therefore, we started this talking about selling apples to Safeway with the function of earning money. And now I'm proposing this radically different picture of GERD. And I'm not saying that the whole GERDitude thing is for everybody, but I suspect that a lot of permies are very interested in it. Um, I don't know if, if, uh, for the people that are in on this call, so we now have like, I don't know, a dozen people on this call. Uh, if you could hit the, the raise your hand button to show, and I, and I believe that what you do is you, there's a reactions thing at the bottom, and when you click on that, you can show raise your hand. For people that are interested, like, like the whole concept of GERT has some appeal to them. And it, and and you're finding value in what I'm saying here about pursuing Gert instead of pursuing selling your apples to Safeway. I mean, so there's okay. So here here come the hands. There's a couple so far. Um, three. All right, Alan, yeah. you got your microphone on. Yeah, I was about to say that you know, as you were talking about the whole thing with politics and so forth, it reminded me of a very famous quote from Mollison, uh, Mr. Mollison. Uh, that uh, probably all people have heard, but I'll just bring it back up here because I think it, it bears on the conversation. He said, the greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even if on a small scale in our own gardens. If only 10% of us do this, there is enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens to <laughs> depend on the very system that they attack and who produce wor- words and bullets, not food and shelter. I think that's I, – I especially like the uh, the part about revolutionaries who have no gardens. It's yeah. like I kind of feel like, like where's your garden? And I don't have one. It's like well, I have a hard time kind of uh, going along with what you're saying there, buddy. Um, okay. Um, let's see. I talked about the permaculture millionaire. All right. Now let's get into uh, – well, first of all, I'm, I'm – uh, I'm about to move on to the thing where it says a few ways that a permit can make money with apples. Uh, does anybody have any comments on everything up to this point? Nothing? Okay. Um, oh, somebody wrote. Uh, Diane wrote, we're trying to achieve gratitude for retirement. Uh, most people in their 50s and 60s don't have pensions and will be in tough shape as their employment ends. Um, 
I, I think gratitude is an ultimate retirement state. And I kind of, so now everybody in on this call has backed the Kickstarter for $65 or higher. And it, the Kickstarter is for the skip book, Skills to Inherit Property. And um, I kind of feel like part of what we're trying to say in skip is like, uh, let's suppose that you're 18 years old. And you're thinking to yourself, like, okay, I'm going to go through all these steps, and in the end, I'm going to retire. And when I retire, it's going to be, like, gratitude. And it's kind of like, don't we have a system? That, I mean, I think that the skip book, part of the idea is giving those 18-year-old people the ability to skip directly to the finish line, skip directly to a potential gratitude kind of package. Uh, that's what I think that we've written, but you know, um, uh, I mean, I suppose we should have recorded a podcast to be like, all right, do you guys think we're full of shit or what? <laughs> I, I think that, uh, we're already, in fact, the funny thing is, is that by doing this Kickstarter, we are getting a lot more people that are writing to us and saying that they have property and they're looking for somebody worthy that uh, to will their land to. Um, all right. A few ways that a permit can make money with apples. One, sell to the commodity apple sellers. Your expenses will be less because you don't spray. But you should expect to get paid about 10 cents a pound, and you might have to drive your apples a few hours to the warehouse. You have to grow very specific varieties. Maybe you can start your trees from uh, Antonovka seed and graft the supermarket varieties to that, at least to get the taproot that way. You could attempt to convince the commodity people to carry permaculture stuff for a premium price, but I think you'll be told that the market isn't ready for that. In other words, they don't really understand what you're talking about, and the consumers that buy apples generally don't take that much time in making apple buying choices. And the grocery store buyers don't either. You could spend a few million dollars in advertising to market to the general public about the advantage of permaculture apple, and then you might get 50 cents a pound for apples that are sold for $4 a pound in stores. Number two, do like the couple did in the Broken Limbs movie. Take the apples to a Saturday market or farmer's market. They drove about three hours and sold their apples for a fraction of the price of the other sellers and sold out quickly. The story was that they were going to sell via the number one process, and even then it looked like they were going to lose their farm to the bank. Then Hale destroyed 9% of the crop. They took the remaining beat-up apples to Seattle and sold them almost instantly and had more money than if they had no hail and did the number one thing. Number three. Just like number two, but tell your customers about the value of permaculture and polyculture. Become the go-to source at the market. As you sell out faster, gras gradually raise your prices. After all, do these apples cure cancer and save the bees? Is the flavor better? If the apple tree is grown with raspberries, can people taste the raspberries in the apple? Number four. 
The People from the Broken Limbs movie in number two moved on to make an apple of the month business. A box is shipped out once a month to people featuring their apple varieties. They made so much money this way that they paid off their mortgage and bought more land. Number five. Improvement ideas on number four. Each apple has a story. What is it good for? Eating fresh? Baking? Saw? Cider? Storage? What is the tree growing next to? Can you taste that? And instructions on how to grow apple trees from seed for this month. A little more information on what would be good polyculture guild plants and why. A permaculture apple gift box might contain a dozen rather perfect apples. Maybe a person is getting $7 per pound and infecting brains of permaculture. Even just one box would be an excellent gift from a permie or to a permie. And a year-long subscription would be an even better gift. Even more, a permie could be desiring seeds and could get these very seeds packed in apples. Number six. Another fellow in the Broken Limbs movie has a few trees and takes boxes of apples to local organic co-op. It sounds like he pops into his town uh, once in a while already, so it isn't really an extra drive. Just a dozen boxes or so. He got a little over a dollar a pound. So the store probably, the store is probably selling them for two dollars or more a pound. Uh, number seven. The guy from number six could set up a little honor system food stand in front of his house. Maybe he could get two dollars per pound. And he could have a bunch of other stuff sitting out there. Veggies, other fruits, crafts, eggs. Number eight, expanding on number seven, provide additional information about the foods with an emphasis on permaculture and polyculture. Point out the stuff about how grocery store food is about uh, the long shelf life, so it has hardly any flavor or nutrition. Point out, how, point out to vegans how many animals are killed in the harvesting of organic monocrops by big machinery. And how this food is all hand-harvested. Do the thing where people are encouraged to start their own apple trees and other things from seeds within the fruit sold. And what might be a good polyculture for each. Build demand, which leads to raising prices. Number nine. By the way, if if anybody wants to talk about these, go ahead and do that raised hand thing, and I'll I'll pause and give you a chance to say your thing. Um, number nine, Sepp Holcher has talked for so many years about the value of permaculture food that many people in his area swear that it has cured their illness or made them younger. Sepp charges 95 euros per person to come onto his land, and he gets 100 people a day. He gives them a quick tour and asks them to show themselves out. They fill their bags as they exit. 
each person can only take as much food and seed as they can carry in one load. Number 10. A permaculture consultant called me one day and told me he was on the road driving to see a client. He was really proud of his new design for the client. The land was nearly useless. It had been abused to the point that it was a big gob of flat, broken clay where nothing was growing. He managed to turn it into a weed patch, so the soil was being improved. His design is to grow alfalfa. I was pissed. Of course, this is sort of my thing, I guess. I want everybody to do things my way, which is nearly always different than what they have in mind. Alfalfa would be baled and carried away three times a year, thus depleting the soil again. I asked about this situation. 200 acres of pretty useless spent desert. One huge house with the owner. I mean, it was something like, I don't know, 10 or 12 bedrooms or something really enormous. Apparently, the owner is some sort of guru, and people come from all over the world to visit him. My designing over the phone. Do two acres of culture surrounded by huge berms to reduce the desiccating wind. Start thinking about some smaller water features. Each year, add another acre. Grow a magnificent permaculture garden. Rent the rooms to the visitors. A cook harvests food and feeds the guests. The income is the rooms. Tell the visitors about the food, the value of permaculture, and the guru's commitment to permaculture. As demand rises, raise the prices of the rooms. I think the real number 10 is set up a permaculture sanctuary of sorts. People pay to visit. The apples are part of the big picture. Maybe served as pie or a snack. Number 11, the state of Gert. Maybe your neighbors give you $50 once in a while and they pick a bunch of apples. Sometimes for a lot of fresh eating and pies. Sometimes for candy. Sometimes Gert picks the apples and sells a dozen boxes for $20 a box. And the neighbor's friends come pick up the boxes. Maybe another neighbor pays a few hundred dollars to run their pigs through once in a while and eat the dropped apples or pays in pork. Maybe another person has a little honor system stand like number eight and Gert gets $8 per box that the other person picks and $25 per box that Gert takes to the stand herself. Number 12. Gert is part of a small, closed permaculture community. There's some of the number 11 stuff, but there are also some visitors that come through. Gert sells her apples to some of the hosts that cook some meals, and Gert puts together boxes like number 5 for the guests. 
And she sends out boxes sometimes, but just for a few people that stay there. All right, there you go. Twelve things for getting more money for your apples. And I do think that they're kind of in a in a kind of order there. Number one, pretty close to the commodity market kind of stuff. But I do think that um, for a while there, we were getting more and more money for those apples. We were getting a lot more money per pound, you know, which kind of equates to dollars per hour in a way. And then we started transitioning to something where it's kind of like, you know, you don't, your need for dollars is reduced. Your dollar goes 10 times farther. So if your dollar goes 10 times farther, you need one-tenth the dollars. So if your dollar goes 10 times farther and you're getting a really great price for your apples, but you're just not doing a lot of work, it seems like you're actually coming out even more dollars ahead. I mean, at some point in time, are you getting 10 or $20 per pound of apples? And then on top of that, you know, you don't even need very much money. Your need for money is like, you know, if, if, if you gave Gert a million dollars, her life would not change. Anybody got anything they want to add to this point? Any comments on any of the stuff I just read out of this article? Well, one of the things that hits me here is you mentioned something I think is important, which is the apples have a story. You know, we talked about me going through Whole Foods, and yeah, I can see that they have about six varieties of apples. That's about it. Um, and if I named those particular varieties, probably most people uh, listening would be able to identify which ones, you know, what they were. And I think part of that is that you, know, you go in and you look at this, well, here's a Granny Smith, and here's a Gala, and here's a Fuji, and so forth. And um, there is, of course, nothing there but the story of those apples. Um, you, uh, Which ones are good for baking? Which ones are good for out-hand eating? Which ones make good cider? You know, it's it's not included there. Um, and, you, and you just have this very narrow band of a few varieties um, and I guess you're supposed to just have kind of like somehow picked up which ones make the best out of hand eating versus which ones make good cider if that's what you're going to do and so forth. Versus like if you are looking at the literally hundreds of potential local varietals in, in a landscape that used to be grown, then they all have stories, um, and they have a connection to place and they have, um, and part of the of the knowledge of the place was knowing which of those local varieties were good for what. And I also noticed that a lot of them, you know, were not ones that were cultivated by industry to have nothing but sweetness. And they all of the, the apples you can buy in a grocery store to me today are just very bland tasting. They have sweet is about their only flavor note in most of them versus a lot of the the richness of a lot of local varietals that grow around here that still have all the flavors of their phytochemical richness involved. A much richer experience, um, and to me, probably a much more healthy experience to have to be eating those apples that still have some of their phytochemical richness to them. But also, to me, it's more nourishing to, to be eating an apple that has a story and a, and a, and a connection to place. 
I, uh, I kind of, I'm, I'm going to speculate a moment. I'm not sure how true this is, but I believe that nearly all of the apples that you can buy at the grocery store are going to be a keeper style. So there's, um, in the world of apples, there's like, uh, a dozen different kinds of attributes that you would get for, for apples. So for example, one ap- attribute out of a dozen would be, um, this particular variety produces a very large apple versus something close to a crab apple or a medium-sized apple. It's like, oh, it's a nice big apple. What a big apple. That's one thing. Um, another, another one is, is that, uh, uh, gonna be the whole concept of what's referred to as the winter keeper apple. So, um, a tree will put out apples that tend to be really quite hard, but, um, the, the thing is, is that they will last for like, uh, uh, five months after they've been harvested. And I would imagine that this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of apple that is going to do particularly well in a grocery store on the shelf. And so I'm just speculating that, I mean, like, okay, the most popular, uh, apple is the Macintosh. Is the Macintosh apple, is that a winter keeper? I think it probably is. Yeah, from, from what I've been able to see in working with this, most of, pretty much every apple that you're going to see in a major chain is selected as a varietal because it can store relatively well, uh, that it can, it bruises not very easily. In other words, it can handle uh, transport, that it, it grows to a fairly uniform size, and that it um, is fairly sweet, uh, that is, uh, to m- match the demand, uh, f- uh, flavor demands from consumers. And that varietals that don't meet all those requirements are much less likely to make it into any of the major chain uh, grocery stores. I know that when I was a child, um, my granddad had a single apple tree, and it was the variety was yellow transparent. And um, it's one of the first apples available every year, um, and uh, it has it has a unique flavor. Um, and uh, but the thing is, is that it'll pump out a whole bunch of apples all at once, and you better eat them now. <laughs> it does not keep. <laughs> you you will uh, the apples are too green, too green, too green. Suddenly they're ripe. And then you go in there and you, you stuff yourself eating apples, and um, on the, three days later they're all rotten. And it's kind of like there's this window of time to go and eat those apples. Uh, so I'm going to say uh, I I don't recall ever seeing yellow transparent apples offered for sale anywhere, um, but it is a very popular home apple tree because it's the first tree of the season. But um, and I think you you know I've done a lot with yellow transparent uh, and there's lots and lots you can do with it but you all got you got to do it all quickly. Yeah, get, I, get it brings back it? brings back memory, Paul, of, of me visiting my grandmother uh, in West Virginia when I was young. She had two apple trees and of course they were a local varietal, but they did put out green apples that that did go off pretty quickly. But they they all she, they sat in a huge huge um, uh, harvest all at one time, and she would gather them all up 
they should be got this huge copper cauldron and um, make uh, quart after quart of apple butter and <laughs> uh, make enough for the entire year. And that was how they saved those apples for the year. And that was uh, when I went every time was one of the, the big things was all that homemade apple butter that she would do on her homemade biscuits every morning. And this is how people used to interact with, with, uh, with that particular problem. You know, it was like you had a bounty and how do you, how do you do something with it? Um, and, and, you know, uh, in, instead of expecting the apples to be available on the shelf at the store year round. All right. I'm going to move on with the article. Many years ago, I had a presentation I created, and I presented it several times to large audiences, how to make the big bucks with permaculture. And I, I think one of the times I presented it, I, uh, I recorded it in a podcast. So I think, like, podcast number nine is uh, my, pre- my presenting it, which must have been, like, ten years ago or more. Um. I think, one, oh, there it is. I think one time it was recorded and it's still available as a podcast. Okay. I think all of those things still stand. Uh, all of the things from those presentations will bring in a lot more money than if the person traveled a more conventional approach. And they are a lot of work. When people first contemplate permaculture, it seems that their income thoughts lead towards working at a farmer's market or running a CSA. Eventually, these tend to just not pay enough, and these folks tend to let permaculture go. Okay, i got to say, I have probably heard from 20 people who listened to my podcast and heard me talk about how uh, most people doing a farmer's market or running a CSA end up earning less than minimum wage. It's a lot of work, and the, the payback just usually doesn't pay out, and there's better ways. And so I've heard from dozens of people who have said, they heard me say that, and they thought I was full of shit. So they went ahead and did it. And then after a year, uh, and that's when they contact me to say, okay, I give up. You're right. <laughs> but, hey, keep on going out there. I'm full of shit. Go, go do that. So, um, uh, Alan, how many people have you talked to who have decided to do the farmer's market or running a CSA? And how did that work out for them? Um, the only place I've seen uh, farmer's markets really work for people is when they have a specific niche product that has a high market demand. Like there's a gentleman here who uh, is doing soy-free eggs, for example, Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very high demand for in this area because there's a lot of soy sensitivity. Okay. He shows up at the farmer's market as a distribution point. Uh, he opens at 8 o'clock, and he sold uh, over 100 dozen eggs by 8.30 and packs up and goes home. Um, but that is the exception because he's got a very specific niche, high-value product. Um, the only other one I know that's successful at doing that is one of the very few uh, places here that grows in a truly or, you know, past organic way. They have developed relationships with customers and they also show up with pre, um, orders that have been given by email and, um, people show up and pay their money and pick up their, um, bags and go. So it's not quite a CSA, but so they're using the, they're using the, uh, farmer's market as more of a distribution point. Uh, than anything else. 
Is there anybody else who is participating uh, today that has any feedback about the fabulous wealth one gets from uh, selling produce at a farmer's market or running a CSA? Anybody? You, 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 it doesn't be personal experience. Maybe you've heard of some people or anything like that. Anybody else that could confirm or deny the stuff that we're attempting to say? Nope, apparently not. Okay. Um, all right. Moving, moving along. Um, others are determined to feed the world with permaculture. They take a vow of poverty, work incredibly long hours, sell the food for cheap. And speaking of Safeway, a lot of times they're trying to sell the food for less than what Safeway charges. So sell the food for cheap and discover hundreds of barriers making it difficult to feed the masses. Barriers that are usually solved with money and or red tape. One of the things I've heard from permaculture circles over and over again is feed yourself First, to me, it sounds a bit like the GERT thing. Once you have your permaculture systems that provides 90% of your food, and you have a home, even a tiny, humble home, and you have no debt and very low monthly expenses, maybe a little bit in savings, then it's a lot easier to do a little to feed the world or be part of a CSA or a farmer's market but then I think you're kind of like doing the CSA, the farmer's market thing, as like, because it's cool. You you like doing it. You like going there and being part of that. You know, it's like part of who you are. It's just an enjoyable experience. You're, you're doing it for the sake of the fun, not because you're going to get your survival money. Um. <clears throat> this kind of talk often leads to talk about how did Gert get her land or how did Gert get the money to get the land or how did Gert get the money to create her patch of permaculture. It always strikes me that the Gerts of the world just go about being passionate about permaculture and an opportunity presents itself. I have met hundreds of people where they followed their passion, and in the end, it all worked out. We can call it magic. And each person stumbled onto a different magic. And then there are angry people where they cannot bother to learn permaculture or plant a seed or build any experience, and they seem to think that somebody will do it all for them. Those people tend to not stumble into magic. I think this is an excellent conversation for the time. Okay, I, I want to say that when it comes to this magic, another way of expressing this magic might be to call it the skip program. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Say, magic sounds like skip. I, I, I do feel like uh, a lot of people – stumble into an opportunity. They, they go out, they work hard, they're keen on permaculture, and then magic happens, and they've got a plot with a home and things like that. 
I, I think, I think in a way, uh, Skip is about formalizing this process. Now, I, I saw a post in the chat, and here's what I'm going to do. Uh, for everybody that's involved in this call, see if you can find the put the hands up button and put the hands up if, if you believe you might be a person that is going to be, uh, that, that could someday be looking for somebody worthy to will your land to. So like you have, uh, a land, uh, with a home and there might even be some money in the bank and you're thinking to yourself someday, I'll be looking for somebody to will my land to. All right. So right now there are three hands up. So um, the, the the key is, is that now, of course, we had some people who posted at the Permies and they said, oh, I would will my land to somebody. And I'm looking for somebody worthy to will my land to. And they just got deluged with people saying, I'm worthy, give it to me. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, so of course that person's like, can I delete this? Can I hide this? I'm getting way too much attention from people who say they're worthy, which is not the same as knowing that they're worthy. And, uh, and I think that there's a, uh, this is a big problem is, is that, uh, that we're trying, that I think Skip solves is that for each person who might be, let's say, PEP2 certified, there's probably 200 people who are glad to say that they are PEP2 certified, but you know, without the official certification. And it turns out that, that they just, that they're just saying that, you know, and it's like they're not really. Um, so I kind of feel like the great thing is the great thing about Skip is you is we finally have a way. If a person is authentically an industrious person, Skip is a piece of cake. It's easy, easy peasy, and um uh and the number of people here's here's the next question, and I and I'll leave, I'm going to do a call of hands for this. I'm going to guess that a bunch of people on this call have heard of people, like they've met people that are looking for somebody to inherit their homestead. And so uh, I, I, want to, I want to put the question out there, uh, how many people have met somebody that, that they're looking for somebody to inherit their land? They're looking for somebody worthy to inherit their land. They're struggling with it. I mean, I'm sure you've all seen the video. You know how I talk about Mike, uh, Mike Ayler. And in the video, I'm talking about how Mike Ayler was looking for somebody. And um, and in the end, he, he died before he found somebody. But uh, he had more than 100 interns over the years, and none of them made the cut. But show of hands, who knows of somebody that that they've met at some point in their life that would, uh, that is looking for somebody to will their land to somebody, somebody worthy. Zero hands are going up. Um, so I guess we just have the three people that have, they're like, I'm, I would be glad to find somebody worthy to will my land to, but they don't know about the people. I feel like before, before we started the Kickstarter, 
I feel like I heard from more than two dozen people that were looking for somebody worthy. And after the Kickstarter started, I think we probably heard from, I'm going to say five more people who are looking for somebody worthy. Yeah, I think I've, I've heard probably closer to eight um, Otis's or people who are looking for land since the Kickstarter started. I can't raise my hand for some reason because I'm a co-host, but yeah, I've held <laughs> my hand up for the last couple as well. I've, okay. I know a few people personally that don't know their Otis's, but are, so I just have to convince them, <laughs> give them the buck. <laughs> and then. I, it does, and if nothing else, I mean, we've been looking up a, a bunch of statistics and the number of, uh, farms that just, um, like like somebody dies and then the, the farm just goes to shit and then the family, of course, they're like wanting to sell the farm or get money for it. But some of them are like, we want the farm to continue and not sell it. I wish we could find somebody worthy to keep the farm running um, and we'll pay them. Uh, but then uh, there's a lot of people, I think, oh, I, I think I read one of the statistics is it's like slightly more than half of of uh of acreage of plots of farms um uh just would go to the government like the person would die and there were no heirs so it just goes to the government who just sells it for whatever they can get for it um i mean the uh and then there was like another statistic that was about the the number of acres per year that goes into um disuse it, it it's nothing's being done with it. It just becomes a giant weed patch, and then the uh, the, the houses, the buildings just uh, start to decompose and degrade. Uh, and it was kind of like the the number of those was just profound. I think we there was like New York State had some very exact numbers for that, and so um, and the numbers were just absolutely massive. Yeah. All right. Yeah, something like three hundred thousand acres a year over a 15-year period, something like that. And then there's also all the houses that are given to unworthy people or or, or just sold after they're passed on, and then they, the orchards and gardens get turned into lawn, and the house is torn down, and you put up your little mansion or subdivision shows up. So that isn't lost to the government or, or abandoned. It's just converted into urban sprawl. Yeah, yeah. All right, continuing on with our article. The question is how to get permaculture apples into Safeway. I know my answer will sound batshit crazy to the person asking the question because it's a massive response that dodges the question. The largest part of my official answer is do the GERT thing. And if millions of people do the GERT thing, then maybe random permaculture apples will someday appear at Safeway. I can wish for an end to the Kim-Ag subsidies that make Kim-Ag apples so cheap on the market. And I can wish for an end to petroleum subsidies that make that fuel and fertilizer so cheap for shipping and petroleum-based ag. Maybe local permaculture apples will be cheaper than Kim-Ag apples from China. But this is all just silly wishing. I would like all apple orchardists all over the world to learn about permaculture and then replace 90% of their apple trees with other fruit trees 
nut trees, lots of different trees, shrubs, and other crops. They would then grow 50 different crops in the same space, and they would continue to grow apples. I like the idea that they feed themselves first, and then they sell apples for far more than they're currently getting. If hail hurts their apples or they don't get enough money for the apples, then it could just be a bumper crop year of pork. All right. Um, I kind of feel like the thing about I like the idea that they feed themselves first. I, I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on where um, people are uh, growing crops, growing apples in a food desert. So it's like, oh, yeah, there's lots of apples, but there's not other kinds of food. And so um, I, I kind of feel like um, that's another great reason for them to grow a garden or to grow other foods in between all the other foods. So uh, I I kind of – so the, the concept of a food desert in the middle of like – you know, like in the middle of Washington State, I've been there. Uh, do we have a show of hands of how many people have been out in the middle of Washington State where they grow all those apples and been driving past um, billions and billions of apple trees? Um, so uh, there's a hand waving. Uh, um, the thing is, is that it's like, yeah, there's – there's hardly anything out there. Like, uh, like you drive to, uh, between Wenatchee and Tenasket, and it's like, uh, sure, in Wenatchee and Tenasket, there are restaurants and grocery stores and things like that. But in between, there's not much. And uh, and there'll be uh, apple stands selling apples, but it's just apples, not much of anything else. Once in a while, you'll get to a food stand that'll have some other things. But, boy, it, it does. It seems like quite the food desert. And uh, my understanding is that in the Midwest, like in uh, uh, corn country, corn and soybean country, then it's just corn and soybeans and uh, nothing else. All right. Uh, My experience has been that um, the way that we have things set up today, most so-called farmers would starve to death on their own farms if they didn't have food coming in from the outside. It's true. It's true. If you really want to see permaculture apples in the safe way, consumers have to ask for permaculture apples. And the first step for that is start telling all those people about the value of permaculture. I can think of dozens, maybe hundreds of answers, each catering to all the nutty follow-up questions that this same person might ask. But I'm going to focus on my favorite answer. My official answer is 65% the GERT thing. The remaining 35% is made up of a community of, say, 40 people. Some people bring money to the community, and they buy meals from somebody that prepared the meals with the food that came from six or seven producers, one of whom was GERT. There is no safe way in this answer. Gert doesn't even make epic cash from apples. Gert does make about $8,000 per year from 40 different crops and from other business arrangements she has with other people in her community. 
all of the stuff about the natural wax being stripped off, the natural apples replaced with petroleum wax is eliminated. There are no stickers on the apples. There are no sprays being used. No grafting or transplanting. There are no huge trucks going to the warehouse and from the warehouse to the distribution center than to the grocery. People don't drive to the grocery store to get the apples. There are no deals where the orchardist pulls up to sell the apples and is informed that the price being paid for Macintosh apples has dropped 12% this year. He doesn't like it. He can leave his apples to rot on the tree. The warehouse isn't trying to compete with apples from China. And nobody is asking for the government for more subsidies for assistance. The apples are not limited to a half dozen varieties that are best known for their very long shelf life. There's also no need to store the apples in the low oxygen environment to get them to last longer, which is a thing we haven't mentioned yet. My understanding is is that like uh, the Macintosh Chapel, I think I think what they do is they uh, put it in a space that's uh, like pure nitrogen, like you know gaseous nitrogen, not liquid nitrogen or anything like that. It's just they they remove all of the oxygen, so any fungus or bacteria or anything in there that's thinking about eating an apple cannot survive in that environment, and so it dies. And so then the apple lasts longer. So there's this, this you know, bizarre low oxygen environment to get the apples to last longer. In my favorite answer, there are millions of communities all over the world. Maybe we call them villages or something. Some have hundreds of people and some have just a dozen. And in each one, there is diversity of people. Some people are bonkers about producing food. Some people are bonkers about cooking. Some people are bonkers about building. The list goes on and on. And some people are just plain old retired, complete with savings and or residual income streams. They don't really need to leave their community. They have everything they need. Maybe they get some stuff from Amazon once in a while. Maybe they take a trip to town once a month. Maybe they go to the big city once a year. Some people might have gone five years without leaving the village. Gert and her community and permaculture. This is my answer to nearly all of the world's problems and nearly all the questions I'm asked. There are about 20 people at my place today. A lot of food is being grown and planted. Humble homes are being built. And one person asked about getting permaculture apples to Safeway when I pointed to a tiny apple tree about four inches tall that was growing up from the end. There you go. That's my little essay that I wrote four years ago. Any questions or comments? Rude gestures. Uh, infant. Alan. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, I was just double checking to make certain 
on the level was being done uh, that could be added to your list of things on the apples is that the permaculture apples are not irradiated with gamma radiation. That's true. To make them last longer. That's true. Yeah. I mean, which is being done. Selling point: the gamma radiation is how we turn into the Hulk. Ah. (laughs) And ladies and gentlemen, the female Bruce Banner. (laughs) So. Yeah, they use gamma radiation to kill um, a lot of the microbial organisms on certain um, vegetables, and uh, I was just double-checking and making certain, yes, it is It is used on some apples. Um, it's used on a lot of leafy greens and things like that these days uh, to try to kill things like salmonella and E. coli and so forth because of the problems with the um, supply chains on these large uh, ag um, systems. Do you know if any of that is being used on organic apples? That would have to, I have to do some research. I can't tell you that off the top of my head. Okay. All right. Um, I, I do. There's a, there's a beautiful video on YouTube. Um, I, I seem to be the only person that finds it interesting. Every time I try to share it and point at it, everybody else seems bored. Um, to me, it's, it's so important, but it's, it's this girl who's like, I don't know, maybe she's nine and, um, and she's like, uh, this is her, her, um, I guess it would be like her science experiment or like science fair exhibit or something like that. But she's like, okay, uh, here's me trying to grow. Uh, I, I got a sweet potato and I cut it in half and put the toothpicks in it and I put it in water and I'm going to grow a sweet potato. And, um, uh, and it didn't do anything. And it's like, so, uh, somebody pointed out that the sweet potato is treated with stuff to keep it from sticking little roots out because people don't like to buy sweet potatoes that have little roots sticking out of them. And it's this stuff called bud nip. And until I watched this little girl's video, I had never heard of bud nip. So anyway, it's, it's, it's got this bud nip. And, and on top of that, she said something like, I believe it's not even like sprayed on the outside. It's more like, it's more like it's something systemic, like somehow, I don't know, the plant must get to a certain point, and then so it's inside it. It's not just on the outside. You can't wash it off. It's inside the, the sweet potato. So then she decided to go to an organic grocery store, and, uh, and she bought an organic um, uh, sweet potato. And then she did it with that. And, and she did get some growth out of it, but it was pathetic. It was like, you know, like, what? This is hardly doing anything. So then she found out that the organic stuff is also treated with budnet, just not as much. And that the only way to get a sweet potato that is not treated with budnet, she had to go to one of those, like, it wasn't exactly a Saturday market, but kind of like a public market or, you know, like what's fresh from the farm kind of a thing, like farm direct or whatever. And then that stuff. And then she planted that. So she had all three. And so she showed all three in their current state. The first one still had no growth on it. The second one had this little bitty growth on it. And the third one had this big jungle growing four feet tall out of it. 
And so to me, it's kind of like, in a way, this kind of is painting a picture of what we're talking about. I mean, if nothing else, the third one was grown in a garden, and no, and no one ever had a chance to spray it with budnip. And on, on top of that, I believe the little girl pointed out how the budnip is toxic, and it does make people sick. I, I think it may even be carcinogenic. And yet, of course, it's acceptable to be used in organic food. All right. Uh, anybody got anything to add? Nope. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at termes.com, where we talk about not but that <laughs> where we talk about Gert homesteading and permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts. 